0: All right, good evening. Let's take our Bibles. Thank you, Rick, appreciate that very much. Turn to Luke chapter 21. As you're turning there, we're really ending our time in the infancy narratives of Jesus and John the Baptist. And in particular, I'd like us to consider that Luke is asking us to do something with the birth of Jesus Christ. That's really the question, what will you do with now the person of Jesus Christ? I think Luke asks us in so many indirect ways here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. Let's pray very quickly and then uh, we'll in- investigate this short passage, shorter than what we've had the last couple of times together, and see what God has for us. Father, thank you again that you have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a mystery upon mystery that God would dwell with us and has already been prayed that you desire so much more than mere information imparted to man. But the profound truth that you teach us is that you care intimately for each one of us. That truth could not be clearer from the manifestation of your Son, our Savior. And we pray tonight that as we investigate this final episode of his infancy, Just what is it that you would have us to do with him? Make no mistake about it, you've called each and every person to do something with Jesus. And that is the task before us now as we consider Luke's gospel. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. As a youth pastor, I've had the opportunity to suffer on the paintball field. In fact, I have a whole uh, container at home of youth pastor, specialized youth pastor clothing. And inside that container, uh, that Tupperware container, they're not going to my drawer. It's too, too sacred for even my dressers. It's... It uh, has uh, several paint stains on it that really won't come off. We enjoy going paintball as a youth group, and for the first eight years, I think, of my ministry here, we would take our annual fall trek into the paintball field. And at the end of playing paintball, we would always have some extra paint in a ball, for those of you who aren't familiar with paintball and is there anybody that's not familiar with paintball, and they use these air guns to shoot these paintballs at high velocity speeds, so that they break and hurt, um, and so thus the, the the extra padding that I would wear because I'm a wimp when it comes to pain. I'm rather allergic to it. And at the end of the the time of paintball, we would we would have one last final game and, and I had courageous youth leaders like Chris Wozolowski who had to be dragged out onto the field and, and then I had Matt Albright and Matt Kubiak who, who came in their camo and their hunting gear and they were ready to go. And, uh, and so at the end the four of us would, would challenge the rest of the teenagers who were playing. And we would say okay, it's It's all of you versus the four of us And all you have to do is come storm the bunker And get the flag and you'll win And of course that that jazzed them That energized them If they were tired it didn't matter anymore And, and, And they started Going to their flag Ready to take on the youth leaders There was just one caveat They each had one life And the youth leaders had unlimited lives Well that didn't seem to bother them And they never caught on, but but unless they all stormed the bunker at the same time, there was absolutely no way we were ever going to surrender the flag. And we'll pick them off, even if I get stung in the leg or in the arm, it's okay. We'll pick them off one by one, and of course, after eight years, we still reign undefeated. They haven't really picked up on, there's only one way to win, an unlimited number of lives, an, an enemy that has an unlimited number of lives, and that's just to, to storm it, to storm the bunker, to grab the flag, to, to maybe hit us so much that we, we cower in submission to them, which probably wouldn't happen either. But playing paintball is totally different when you have unlimited lives. And really, before us tonight, the, the point that I, I want us to understand is that we, when, we, when we transfer that idea here to Luke, we see how you view life, or, or more specifically, how you view the end of your life really does change how you live your life. I am not nearly as courageous if I only have one life because who wants to sit out in, in the paintball field and wait 20 minutes for the rest of the team to kill each other or get the flag and be done with it? I'm much more strategic. I hide behind bunkers. And, and, I, let, I, and I, I send a few others out first and say, I'll cover you, it's okay. And then when the coast is clear, I go... because I have more of a, a, a chance of succeeding, of staying in the game. Well, Luke here really takes us to two different groups of people, a group that trusts in the Savior before them and a group that trusts in anything but him. And who or what you trust in is gonna change in its entirety the way that you live your life. How many of you could raise your hand and testify to that reality? After, cha- after trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, your life has changed very concretely, very objectively, very vividly. And so really that is the question that we have before us tonight. And so we see that Jesus' salvation is greater than human and religious efforts. And we're gonna really contrast the two opposing ideas, the salvation that Jesus offers or the efforts of man the structure of a religious system. And so our first point tonight is that the salvation of Jesus is greater than religious effort. It is greater than religious effort. Let's look at verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his, this is Jesus in the context, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young you see, the salvation of Jesus is greater than religious effort. And we see very clearly in, in, in just a few verses how many times, and maybe you've picked up on it, the law according to the law has been mentioned. Because Luke wants us to understand that keeping the law, God, given law is not enough. Keeping the law is not enough. Look at verse 22. According to the law. Verse 23, as it is written in the law. Verse 24, according to what was said in the law. 27, we haven't read it yet, but at the very end, to carry out for him the custom of the law is Luke trying to make a point. Through repetition, he is. Verse 21 talks about his circumcision. And it really, it, Luke really helpfully reminds us here in the beginning as he bookends the law in verse 21 and, and look down with me in verse 39. He bookends this, this section He says, when they had performed everything, verse 39, according to the law of the Lord. In verse 21, we have the circumcision. In verse 39, we have according to the law of the Lord. Luke bookends the the passage here with the concept of the law, the construct, the structure of the law. But he does something also interesting. He reminds us of Jesus' name. He's already said it. We've already given the, 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 the announcement from Gabriel that he is to be called Jesus. Yahweh saves, Jehovah saves. But what does he do in verse 21? He wants to make the vivid contrast that it is Jesus, the babe born in a manger prophesied from long ago, that it is he that transcends the law. It is he that is above the law. It is he that comes because that is the whole purpose of the law. Isn't that what Paul says? The law is the schoolmaster. But in verse 21, we're reminded that Jesus is the name given to the babe in the manger. Yahweh saves. And so, Luke gives us that fresh and beautiful picture, contrary to the law. In verse 21, we see his circumcision. And Leviticus 12 tells us that every male was to be circumcised on the eighth day. In verse 22, we see the purification ceremony. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. A male uh, son was was unclean, considered unclean, for seven days. And then uh, Mary, the mother, would be considered unclean for an additional 33 days. And then after this period, and by the way, daughters, even though they're very quick and And stunningly brilliant right out the gate unlike the rest of us Neanderthal men that kind of stumble around for the first 18 or 35 or 36 years and then figure things out daughters were unclean for double sons, so there we go, I just had to throw that in, They were 14 days considered unclean, I don't know, I didn't really look it up, I don't know why, I'm sure it's in Leviticus 12, if you want to know later you can look it up but the point is, is that they, they followed, they being Joseph and Mary, followed the law to a T here. They followed the law. But, but we're talking about Jesus. Jesus isn't unclean. Jesus is the, the, the opposite, the polar opposite. But yet they followed the law. And what did they do? Well, as it is written, verse 23, Not only did they uh, do the purification ceremony, but then, according to Leviticus 12 and then Exodus 13, they also presented Jesus. They dedicated Jesus to the Lord. And that was really uh, concerning the the remembrance of the Passover. And so every Jew, every, every firstborn after the Passover God gets them together after the Red Sea in Exodus 13. And after, after, after uh, wiping out every firstborn of Egypt, God gets Israel together and he says, I want you to dedicate the firstborn forever as a memorial to what I did here today. And so Jews continue to do this today. And so they, they celebrate the Passover and they dedicate, they present the firstborn to the Lord. Maybe, perhaps, this is where, some of, where, where we kind of get the, the practice a little bit of, of baby dedication. I don't know. But verse 23, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So that's Exodus 13. And, and so what was, the, what was the offering for the purification ceremony, for the dedication of the firstborn? Verse 24, And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law. And what was that? Well, in Leviticus chapter 12, we're told that it's a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon. And then you may say, Well, Pastor Steve, aha, they didn't keep the law. Look at verse 24. It's a pair, they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, there was like a little, and if you can't afford that clause. And they had it down to a T, they had everything spelled out. And if you can't afford a lamb, then go ahead and give two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so this gives us a little window into the class that Mary and Joseph were in. This is no surprise to us, having no room in the inn, having no entourage, travelling with them. But they are what we would be what would be considered today in poverty. And so they give what they can according to the law, and that's two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so we have the purification ceremony, the circumcision, the presentation or the dedication of the firstborn. And we see that they keep the law to a T. And we scratch our heads and say, well, why? <laughs> why would they even bother? And I think what's important for us to understand is as Luke starts to unravel the life of. The final stage of, of the infancy of Jesus Christ, that they keep the law, but that, but that even in keeping the law, Jesus' incarnation is pointing to something more than the law. The law is not enough. If it were, then Jesus wouldn't have to come in the first place. Don't forget how Luke starts this very passage. Don't forget. Jesus was named Jesus by Gabriel as a messenger of God. Yahweh saves, not the law. Don't forget that even though these are things that have been given for you to do, they weren't ever the point. They were never what a relationship with Yahweh was all about. They were only to steer, to guide, to schoolmaster you to the one who loves and gives and demonstrated his love towards you that he gave his only begotten son. And yet you missed, you missed who I am. And unfortunately they will miss who Jesus is. But nonetheless, here we see that keeping the law is not enough. We also see that devotion to the law is not enough. Look at verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was righteous and devout. You know, when the Bible calls someone righteous, not self-righteous, but when the Bible calls someone righteous and devout, that's something pretty special. And so we have this man, Simeon, who is righteous and devout. Luke records for us in Acts, men who were righteous and who were devout and took Stephen's body in Acts chapter 8. Same word there. These men took Stephen's body. Even in the, even in the peril, even in the aftermath of stoning, they took his body and they buried him because these were God-fearing men. And so Simeon is a man like that, a man who has a heart for the Lord more than just the law. And look at verse 36 and verse 37. We have another testimony, another testifier, another witness. Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night night and day with fastings and prayers. And so Luke gives us two interesting, two different people. Simeon and Anna. Simeon, a man who's righteous and devout, and Anna, a prophetess. Someone who has a relationship truly with the Lord. These are both devout, righteous people. Anna was told that she, uh, of Anna, she was said that she never left the temple serving night and day. She didn't grow bitter at God for taking her husband after seven years. She grew closer to God. But yet, as we'll see in a little bit, their devotion was not enough. It wasn't even enough for them. Both of these individuals seem to be older saints. And I know we're picking on older saints today compared to, uh, if you remember, pastor's sermon this morning and, and here, but we're picking on them in a good way because in the first century, bringing up the, the fact that there's a witness, there's a, there's a testimony from an older person just heightened the reliability of that testimony because surely these are people of character Anna, we're told in verse 36 and verse 37 that she was either 84. The, the NASB kind of makes it seem like that is the case, but really uh, it's not as clear as that. It could be that she was married, widowed, and then for 84 years widowed. And so if she was married at perhaps 13 or 14, which was about the time of normal, normal time for marriage, and then she was uh, married for seven years before she would widow, she could potentially be 104 to 105 years old, which wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility even at this time in in human history. And so whether she's 84 or 104, it really doesn't matter. The point is, is that she is an older, devout, devoted saint, and she has been for quite some time The same is true of Simeon. We're not told that he's old. We're not told his age. But we can infer that, I believe, in the text. Verse 26 says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. So in other words, Simeon is waiting, we'll find out, to die. Look at verse 29. And he can't die until what? Until he sees the Lord's anointed until he sees Jesus and in verse 29 we see now Lord you are uh, he, he's actually talking here what's verse 28 then he took him him Jesus into his arms and blessed God and said now Lord you are releasing your bond servant to depart in peace Simeon was ready to go there's not too many 30 year olds that are ready to go but there's some that are a little older that are ready to go So here, perhaps, Simeon is an old man as well. So two examples. Who are these examples? As we've noted, they're dedicated, older, saints reliable, lived out their years in the community as one who fears God. But what's just as interesting is who these examples are not. Where does Where does the presentation of an infant take place? Where does the offering for the purification, cleansing take place? Luke tells us, right? In the temple at Jerusalem. And who is not mentioned at all? We haven't read the entirety of the text yet, but can I tell you who is not mentioned at all in these texts, in this passage? Priests. Religious leaders. Will you, will you say, well, wait, wait a minute, what about Simeon? I don't think we, 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 we know that Simeon was a priest. In fact, I think from, from this passage alone, we, we pretty much can understand that he's coming from outside the temple to the temple. Look at uh, Look at verse twenty-five. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this was a righteous and devout man, but not called a priest, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, verse 26, that he would not see death. Verse 27, and he came in, or guided by the Spirit, into the what? Into the temple. And so it's a God meeting that Simeon finds Jesus in his hands here. And so I think it's very plain that, that it is just as remarkable who these saints aren't. But yet what they do with Jesus is stunning compared the religious leader of the day compared to the priest compared to those who are serving in the temple order these are not trophies of a religious system yet they are trophies of grace I would argue and they were looking for something more than what the law could provide They were looking for so much more. Look at verse 25 again. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking, looking for the consolation of Israel. And then look at verse 38. Speaking of Anna here, and at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking. Same Greek word. It's a specialized Greek word. It can mean waiting, looking forward in anticipation to and oftentimes has something to do with Christ's return. Paul uses that word in Titus this way, Luke uses the term over half the times in the New Testament and twice in this small little passage. We have Simeon who is looking. We have Anna who has surrounded herself with people who are looking. And what are they looking for? They are looking for something more than the law. They are looking for something. And they have found it and they have found it in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're looking for something more because the law is just not enough. These folks were looking for something more. The, a few weeks ago, we had an opportunity to have a chaplain come into uh, the youth group and, and chat uh, to the to the teenagers and to the college and career about the chaplaincy. This chaplain gave a, a great message and, and he, he gave kind of an overview of what the chaplaincy looks like. And, and at the end, he made the comment that I found startling and, and profound. He said that the US government has so many, has designated so many spots in the military for chaplaincy, In other words, I think in his branch, I think he was from the, the Marines, and, and, and I think the Marines and the Navy have the same cha- chaplaincy, um, whatever. So I think he said that in, in all of those branches, there was 800 spots. And when, and when a chaplain retires or, or leaves service, they fill that spot, always automatically they have certain number of spots and they always fill them and so he said one of his burdens for the chaplaincy is they will fill those spots with with the with the applicants that that apply sorry that's redundant all right but they will fill those spots with the best credentialed applicants and his point was that if, that if people who know the Lord Jesus Christ apply for being a chaplain, the chances of them becoming a chaplain are high because the U.S. government always has spots for the chaplaincy and they will fill those spots with whatever applicant applies. But the reverse is also true. They don't really necessarily look at the religion of the applicant. You could name your religion and they will fill it as long as they have the appropriate credentials, the educational requirements. And so his point was a profound one. There is always a spot to be filled in the U.S. government. And will you at least pray with me that God will raise up enough people to fill those vacant spots with people who preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he went on to to make the same application to souls. There is, just like the U.S. government, there is always a need in a person's soul. Always. Always. The position's always there. But what will they fill with that open position? That's the question. What will they fill with it? Will they fill relationships, religion, entertainment, substance, amusement? What will they fill with? with the open spot that they have in their soul. And so I, I couldn't help but, but hear that echo as I consider a man like Simeon and a lady like Anna who is working through the law that they have and yet there is something still More that they are looking for. Verse 25, verse 38. What they have before them before they see Jesus isn't enough. It isn't enough. They need something more. And my friends, I, we gather together with those who have found the same deep longing that what was in your life before you met Jesus Christ wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. But you know what we can do with that same knowledge now? Is understand that the people that we work with people that we live with, that we neighbor with, that we hang with, those that we call friends and family and gather around the table with, they too have an open position if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are desperately trying to fill it with things that will not be enough whether it's a grand religious structure, like we have here, according to the law, written in the law, or whether we have the throes of entertainment or whatever the pleasures of this world have, it just isn't enough. And in Simeon's case, he was looking for something very specific. Look at verse 26. Excuse me, verse 25. We've read this verse quite a bit, but look at the end of the verse. Looking for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. He was anticipating comfort, peace, something more. Isaiah majors on this theme. And if you will, just for a moment, look over with me. By Isaiah chapter forty, because I think what's fitting in this passage is that Simeon was looking for something more. He was looking for a consolation that surpasses death, because Simeon, remember, was ready to die. He says, "Lord, now I can depart in peace. I've seen Jesus. What gives a man?" The ability to say, I can depart in peace. That's a supernatural thing, isn't it? There's there's a supernatural hope attached to a statement like that. And I think that we'll see it here in Isaiah chapter 40, that it is really the resurrection, the bodily resurrection that gives Simeon, and all those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ a peace to depart because there will be a time that I will live again and of course we understand that in the interim we, we know as, as New Testament saints to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord and so we have comfort upon comfort don't we But look at Isaiah chapter 40 comfort this is the consolation. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. And in the, in the we're not gonna read the entire passage, but I'm just gonna give us a few, few highlights. As, as the, the way is cleared out of the wilderness, he uses figurative language, and in the deserts and in historical language. And verse four, as the valleys are lifted up and as the mountains and hills are made low and as the rough ground is made plain, All good things. Verse 5 we see that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. That is a statement of the profound reality that God is sovereign. Look at verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. He will gather the lambs. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Sorry. My goodness. All right. We'll just skip over that one. What's the point? What's the point? The point is like a shepherd, like a tender shepherd carrying them in their arms, tending the flock, gently leading That is what he's going to do with his people. Then in verses 12 and following, we see another amazing statement of God's sovereignty, specifically in the reality that God is the creator who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales, who has directed the spirit of the Lord, who has counseled, or who or who or as his counselor has informed him with whom did he consult the obviously answer is no one no one taught him knowledge no one informed him of under understanding the nations are like a drop in the bucket and it goes on and on and on verse 22 it is he who sits above the circle of the earth verse 23 it is he who reduces rulers to nothing verse 26 lift up your eyes and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. It's really in contrast to someone like Simeon, isn't it? who's ready to go. Someone like Anna, who's at least 84, if not 104. He gives strength to the weary, verse 29. To him who lacks might, he increases power. These are beautiful words that we know well. Verse 30, though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous men Young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. The old will become young again. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, how does that happen? It happens because God gives us new bodies. It happens because this is not all that we have. It happens because what I look at in the mirror today will be transformed, glorious, and new tomorrow. And that is something that the law could never do, but only cried out saying, there is one to come whom you must trust in and he will guide you like a tender shepherd guides his sheep. And so that's a beautiful reality, isn't it? And so Simeon exhibits the same confidence in this kind of comfort and consolation when he says, I have seen the savior. I can depart in peace. Abraham believed in a resurrection. You can cross-reference Hebrews chapter 11. There were sects in Judaism at this time that did not believe in a resurrection. They were sad, you see, right? We learned that in Sunday school. You remember? They were Sadducees. They didn't believe in a resurrection. Simeon wasn't a Sadducee. That much I believe in. My friends, he is looking for something more and there's only one that offers it. Simeon affirms that he's looking for the promise of peace, verse 29, according to your word. What a beautiful understanding. Simeon had. did not have a bleak view of death, but he had a glorious, peaceful view One that would come again. One that would allow him to come again. These two witnesses were looking for something more. Something that the law could not provide. And sadly, we find that keeping the law and devotion to the law is not enough because the law itself is not enough. And I think Luke gives us such a contrast here that he makes that plain and it is so obvious of of those who he does not talk about, the priests, the religious leaders. Say, Pastor Steve, an argument from silence is not a strong one, and I would say, well, I agree with you, but there is no silence here. Luke makes plain that he is bringing up the law and the temple and the religious structure, and yet, who is missing from it? Those who embrace it and hold to that and that alone, because it's not enough. It's not enough. So the salvation of Jesus is greater than human effort because it is confirmed, it is given by the Holy Spirit. That is our second and final point tonight. The contrast between the law and the Spirit is an abundant and an evident one here. It begins in verse 25. We're told that Simeon, is looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. In verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. In verse 27, and he came in the Spirit. And so just as Luke emphasizes the law, he now emphasizes the reality of the Holy Spirit and his ministry, his authenticating ministry of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such testimony of two ordinary devoted saints was authenticated by nothing less than the ministry of the Holy Spirit himself. Anna, after all, is called a... Prophetess, the very gifting by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit authenticates this babe that Simeon is holding. And we see the announcement of this salvation by the Spirit. So the Spirit guides him into the temple. That is Simeon, and has a divine meeting with Mary and Joseph, who are just trying to carry out the law. Have no understanding what's about to take place. It's you know, and you know, first time mothers, right? I mean, you're not supposed to touch my child for the next 15 years, you know. And I could just see Simeon is waiting to go. He is waiting to depart in peace. I can almost see him not to say anything. He just kind of take the babe, Jesus, out of Mary's hands. And as he's doing that, verse 28, he took him into his arms. He says, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said. Simeon says a few remarkable things here through the Spirit. First of all, he says, My eyes have seen, I have seen God's salvation. It is in the presence of all the peoples, verse 31. It is light to the Gentiles. It is glory, these are very visible, historical, personal, relational things. This isn't just some knowledge Of divine, but Simeon is holding the anointed one in his hands. It's concrete and objective. Isaiah 40 makes much of this. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Isaiah 52 says, The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Psalm 98, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of all nations. One man says the interesting feature of this verse is that seeing God's salvation is linked directly to seeing Jesus. And so that a strong tie exists between salvation and the one who personifies it. There is no salvation without the one who personifies it. This is salvation. The Christ It has been revealed. And we just have to stop and pause for a second and say, wow, Jesus' salvation so, and this is kind of like a no-brainer for us. But I think what we really have to, Simeon grabbed them and said, my eyes now see salvation. For us, we have to understand that salvation is meant to be seen. It is meant to be seen. Who showed you salvation? Do you remember that day? Do you remember the the times leading up to when you saw salvation in the person of Jesus Christ? Who showed you that? Who did God lead into your path to be a light? to reveal his glory. And so we also have to look in the mirror, don't we? And say, how am I showing, displaying, manifesting the brilliant light, the savior of the world in my life? Who is seeing salvation through me? Through the work that God is doing in me? It's an important question, I think, that we consider. But maybe something even more profound in salvation history is the reality that this is the first time in Luke's gospel, in his account, that we see that the Messiah, and perhaps maybe this is what is causing Mary and Joseph to marvel at what is being said, that the Messiah isn't just here for God's chosen people, Israel, but that the Messiah is here, Jesus is here to save the entire world, represented in the Gentiles, for those who believe in him, Ephesians 2 makes that plain. Romans, Paul, James, all the New Testament authors really exemplify the reality that salvation is now to the Gentiles. And they were amazed at this. And so we sit here as, as ones who can breathe a deep sigh of relief. And certainly this is not the first time. The Old Testament is clear that Gentiles would be, would be redeemed. But this is very clear. As salvation is now present, it is very clear. And so we have a wonderful announcement of Jesus' salvation, and then we have an annotation. It's another A. It seemed to fit. It's more than a footnote in Luke's gospel here. But there are some notes that Luke gives us about the salvation of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 34 and 35 with me. Simeon goes on through the Spirit, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, Mary, to the end that the thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And so with this great announcement of salvation of light to the gentiles of glory being revealed in Israel there's also an annotation to that. It is instructive for us as believers who live in this dispensation that there is an annotation to the glory of knowing Jesus Christ and that is his suffering. Those who live according to the Lord Jesus Christ will also suffer according to him. Oh, it's not that God is vindictive or wants to make people suffer. He longs to bless us. He loves us so much that he gave us his son, does he not? But yet, even in his love, Jesus pictures the reality that there is suffering. And that is still true for us today. These concepts in verse 34, the falling and rising of many, harken back to Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 29. And I think, as I've kind of alluded to, I think that Luke has a lot of Isaiah in mind here as he's writing his gospel. And as the Holy Spirit prompts him, Jesus himself refers to this falling and rising when he refers to himself in Luke chapter 20 as the chief cornerstone that will be fallen or rejected by men and embraced by others. Paul talks about this stone of stumbling and this rock of offense but yet those who believe in him will not be disappointed in Romans chapter 9. Peter, in the hallmark chapter of this idea, in chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, says, Behold, I lay a, a Zion, a choice stone. He actually quotes Isaiah, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. But yet there's also those who reject this very cornerstone. And it will become to them a stone of stumbling and a rock offense and as great a salvation as we have in Jesus Christ we often grow discouraged and wonder when people reject it and and somehow we look at our lives perhaps and our delivery and our knowledge and our devotion and we we question and we say hmm what did I do wrong? What, what, if only I were so-and-so, they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ then. But my friends, we should take comfort. It's odd to say, but we should take comfort that even from an infant, it is, it is true. And long before Jesus was even his first advent, God said that many would reject him. He would be a sign, verse 34, to be opposed. Because after all, he is a sign of God's rule and reign in his life. He would be a sword that would pierce Mary's soul. And this is a very vivid picture. This is not just a little dagger kind of a sword. This is like the, the King Arthur sword. I know we're in the wrong period of history, but this is what I'm what, when, when, when authors were describing the context of this sword, I immediately grew to this huge, long King Arthur sword, this double-sided beast of a thing that would, that would take all of your might just to lift and to swing. And I don't know how big Mary was, but she's probably like most women, very tiny, teeny, right? And it's like, it's like this picture of this little lady walking with this huge, ginormous sword pierced right through her. Don't you think Jesus is, Je- Jesus was her son. Can you imagine being the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ? Being tasked with caring for him? Having all those emotions that you get? Even biologically, we understand even more so? Of being a mother? If you're And hey, what's the reality? What, what, what happens? I mean, even, even after this, this text, we find the next episode, Jesus goes to the temple when he's 12. Right, and he leaves his parents. What kind of worry? Now, how are you supposed to worry when you're the mother of Jesus? Right. We know Mary wasn't perfect, but my goodness, your 12-year-old some Mom, don't worry. Well, you can't argue with them. Don't you think that Jesus being gone not having a place to lay his head was a was trouble to Mary in her own humanness? Perhaps maybe even what's in view here is the ultimate reality that Jesus would be crucified in a torturous, horrific death. Not only to watch your son, but your Savior through that and so certainly, true Christ followers will follow no matter the cost, no matter the pain. From the start of Jesus's life, he was, we are, are foreshadowed with the violent rejection of Jesus by many. And, and Luke deliberately, detail by detail, demonstrates God's remarkable sovereign plan, orchestrating all the events, even here in this episode, we see Simeon guided right to the temple. Make no mistake about it, God is in control and God is orchestrating every step. We've seen that here, haven't we, in in the infancy narratives. And we're reminded in Isaiah chapter 53 of the significance of the suffering that Jesus would go through. Jesus' life demonstrates that there may be nothing you can do in a moment of trial, in a moment of suffering, but trust in God's sovereign plan. That may almost seem cliche ish. Oh, just trust in God. But as Simeon is telling Mary, you're going to have your soul pierced through. That's exactly what Mary does. She ponders all these things in her heart. And as she walks according to faith. That's exactly what we are called to do. Luke contrasts two different types of people. One group is rep- represented by Anna and Simeon, people who are faithful, listening to the word of God and living accordingly. And the second group stand eerily in silence. The religious leaders of the day, the the priests, those who carried the weight and the authority and the significance, and those, by the way, whom would later reject and crucify Jesus. Simeon and Anna represent the proper response to the Lord Jesus Christ. The proper reliance, not on self, not on a religious system, but on God's word and God's provision. So, Luke here, I think, has us consider Simeon holding the babe in his arms. (laughs) And I hear the echo What are you going to do with the Lord Jesus Christ? what are you going to do with the Savior of the world? Will you respond like Simeon and Anna who are looking for something more and find it in him? Or will be self-righteous, self-sufficient, self-religious? My friends, this gives us hope tonight for those of us who have come to terms with who is salvation and have accepted him. That now we go into the workplace, into the neighborhood, into our family dinner tables and we seek to show him, to demonstrate him, to share him with all those who are finding other ways, other things. but yet are falling short in what will fill them. The salvation of Jesus is greater, far greater, infinitely greater than all human effort, all religious muster can bear. And for that, we could be grateful. And for that, we have a mission. Father, tonight I pray That you would help us to be people who hold, as it were, with Simeon this child, who is the Savior. And we understand the tremendous cost to follow and to show the Savior to others. We understand that we are creatures and you are the creator and It is your sovereign right and delight to use us how you choose to use us. And so use us, we pray, to give you glory all the more. We long for those in our lives to know Jesus the way you have showed us Jesus as the Savior. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for your patience. You are dismissed. Lord bless you.